Hey, listeners, and welcome back to the Technical Difficulties podcast. Well, actually, it's not welcome back because this is the first time that you'll be joining us here as the Technical Difficulties podcast. But either way, I thank you for joining. Um, so before this this show was going to be uh, more geared towards film, but right now we are just going to be discussing uh, pretty much uh, whatever I want. <laughs> but um, mostly it's going to be about like various forms of media. So it could be film, TV shows, video games, music books, that kind of thing. Um, and I'll also have guests on the show too. Um, but today I, I wanted to start talking about something. I, uh, recently graduated from Oakland university, uh, with a degree in creative writing. And one of the classes I took was a new wave cinema class. It was new wave cinema history. And if you're not familiar with new wave cinema history, it happened around in the sixties, seventies, there was this new wave of cinema and filmmakers in different countries were trying new things and experimenting, and they were trying to go against the uh, you know Hollywood norm, the, the classic structure where you've got some hero going through some kind of you know event, and then there's a happy ending. Uh, I mean that's just kind of basic basic terms, but um, new wave cinema it's a huge part of film history, and um, so today I want to talk about. Or I want to explore the horror genre and its place in new wave cinema history. Um, so I've, I took a couple of these classes and I was surprised. There were a couple horror-ish films that we did watch, which is cool. But I think that there's a lot more of these films in the new wave cinema um, era. And I'd like to discuss some of them. Um, part of this is going to be taken from an essay that I wrote for the new wave cinema class. So, um, yeah, let's get to it. So, before the new wave cinema movements began near the end of the 1950s, the genre of horror has always been about pushing boundaries. Horror films have had a long history of pushing the envelope as to what audiences could be shown on screen, but at the same time have also expanded the boundaries on creative storytelling that also did not obey social and political borders. Many different countries produced their own horror films in the late 1950s through the early 1970s, which took the genre into all sorts of new directions, even splitting off into new subgenres, such as gothic horror and slasher, during this new wave era. Horror films have a long history of breaking taboos and telling stories about individuals dealing with conflicts within society, while also exposing the darkness that lies within the nature of humankind. There have been horror stories told exploring the monsters in our societies, the monster of society, and the monsters hiding within us, such as The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which has been adapted into the film format many times. Certain directors exploring these themes have crafted films that manage to make an impact within the New Wave movement, such as Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960, which is by many to be considered the first film in the subgenre of the slasher, which typically involves a psychotic individual who stalks and kills people with sharp tools, like a knife. One only need to view the infamous shower scene of Psycho to make that connection. My argument is that if we take a look at certain films within the genre of horror from different parts of the world, we will be able to see how important horror films are in the new wave cinema era, and that there have been many important examples in the movement that have inspired countless other filmmakers even to this day. So a good place to start would be during the movement of British horror films in the 1950s and 1960s. 
A lot of these films depicted times of wars and post-war horrors, such as Witchfinder General from 1968, which is a fictionalized take on the witch hunting exploits that occurred during the English Civil War. These more folksy horror tales eventually expanded into their own subgenre known as folk horror, many of which dealt with the topics of authority and patriarchy. Marcus K. Harms, an author, said that these types of British horror films narrate the problematic application of authority and also the ultimate reassertion of epistemic control of women by men. Sometimes it can be difficult to understand the social and political subtext at first while watching a film, a horror film such as Witchfinder General, at witnessing the body mutilation, beatings, and stabbings of people accused of witchcraft. The knee-jerk reaction of being appalled by the horrors portrayed on screen can prove to be a distraction. But audiences have been drawn to these types of films, as some of the most famous and influential films of the 1950s and 60s were created by Hammer Film Productions. Hammer Film is a British film production company well known for their bloody and erotic tales, um, or takes on classic tales such as Frankenstein and Dracula, which gave way to adaptions of various works by Edgar Allan Poe from American film director Roger Corman. During this time, it was clear that the influence of Hammer horror films was starting to cross borders. British films like The Curse of Frankenstein from 1957 and Horror of Dracula from 1958, both of which were quite popular with cinema goers in France and were starting to influence French filmmakers during this time. One of these filmmakers, Georges Franjou, who primarily was a documentary filmmaker in the 1950s, was offered by producer to direct the film Le Yeux Sans Visage, in English known as Eyes Without a Face, from 1960. Frenjou loved the idea of having the opportunity to contribute something of his own to the horror genre. The story in the film Eyes Without a Face, which is based on a novel by Jean Reedon, is about a plastic surgeon named Dr. Genesier, who is dealing with the aftermath of a car crash that left his daughter Christiane's face badly damaged. With the help of his assistant, Louise, Dr. Genesier attempts to find the face of a young woman which he can use to skin graft onto his daughters. In the meantime, Christiane wears a face-like mask made to resemble her face before the accident. Dr. Genesier attempts this grafting procedure unsuccessfully with the faces of many young female victims. Eventually, the police start to investigate the disappearances of these women and end up at Dr. Genesier's clinic. And I like how he progressively keeps saying his name worse and worse. While the police talk to the doctor, Christiane, wrought with guilt and isolation by the hands of her father, attempts to escape. She kills Louise and then sets free the animals that Dr. Genesier had been using in his experiments. The film climaxes when Dr. Genesier is attacked and killed by the dogs in his lab. Christiane escapes and continues on, walking slowly into the woods. Eyes Without a Face was unanimously praised for being poetic in its storytelling, despite its gruesomeness, and being a superb example of fantastic realism in the French New Wave. Franju's interpretation of the story was focused on the visuals, since he claimed to not have the gift of story writing. Franju used elements of surrealism and shock horror throughout Eyes as a way to awaken his audience. Franju was also able to use these elements to link together both horror and history, serving as an ironic commentary on modern ideas of progress. In reference to symbolism in horror films, author John S. Nelson says that the gist of horror is facing evils in everyday life. This is to say that the genius of horror is subtext, 
symbolism that creeps beneath surface meanings to assault our dreams and awaken our minds. Using the symbolism of the eyes and the face, eyes without a face allows the audience to put themselves in the shoes of Christiane as she is trapped behind a faceless mask, observing the horrors of the world around her. The meaning behind such stories are universal, since people all over the world can relate to the ideas of putting on a mask to hide from the pain they are experiencing and being helpless at what they are forced to witness in their lives, which they have no control over. It's quite clear to see why the boundaries of horror are constantly crossing borders, allowing other creative minds and filmmakers to tell their own uniquely powerful stories. If these examples weren't enough to recognize the influence that the horror genre was having throughout the New Wave era, an English filmmaker by the name of Jack Clayton, notorious for being very picky about the films he chose to direct, enlisted the help of iconic American author Truman Capote to co-write the screenplay adaption of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This resulted in the 1961 British Gothic psychological horror film The Innocents, directed by Clayton. The film received international distribution and has since been the subject of many a film analysis and essays in the realm of film theory, since the sexual and psychological subtexts of The Innocents are juxtaposed against its moody and gothic atmosphere. The Innocence is about a reserved woman named Miss Giddens who applies for a job as a governess, a position which is to teach children in a private household. Miss Giddens has no prior experiences, but the wealthy man interviewing her doesn't care, as he explains that he has no room mentally or emotionally for his young niece Flora and young nephew Miles. Miss Giddens first meets Flora and starts to bond with her. Miss Giddens soon after meets Miles, who returns after being expelled from his boarding school for bad behavior. Miss Giddens is confused since Miles seems quite well-behaved and charming, albeit uncomfortably flirtatious. The children then start exhibiting other strange behavior, and Miss Giddens begins to hear voices and see ghostly apparitions around the house. It is deduced that Giddens has been seeing the spirits of the uncle's deceased valet, Peter Quint, and Miss Giselle, the previous governess who died the year prior unexpectedly. Giselle and Quint had an inappropriately sexual and abusive relationship prior to their deaths and are believed to now be possessing the bodies of Flora and Miles. Giddens tries to rescue the children from their possessors, which results in a hysterical Flora being sent away from the estate. Then, after an attempt at forcing Quint to leave Miles' body and free him, Quint appears suddenly and Miles falls to the ground, dead. Miss Giddens cries and kisses Miles passionately as the scene transitions to black. Hey, welcome back. So we've been discussing the new wave cinema era and its ties to the horror genre. So we've been using various films within this era... Um, one of them is The Innocence from 1961, directed by Jack Clayton, and the screenplay was written by Truman Capote. So, The Innocence throughout the years has been critically acclaimed and a constant study of film theorists since the film, with its moody and gothic atmosphere, is rich with subtext, dealing with themes of sexual repression juxtaposed against supernatural elements. The film also deals with topics of um, society norms and sexuality in a psychological manner, similar to what Alfred Hitchcock explored in his seminal horror film Psycho just a year prior. Using films like Psycho and The Innocents as examples, 
it's easier to understand how horror films in the early 1960s New Wave era were not only being used to explore societal views and human sexuality, but also pushing the boundaries on what could be shown on screen, which has usually resulted in controversy. There are two kissing scenes in The Innocence between a Miss Giddens, an adult woman, and Miles, a young boy, which were quite shocking in 1961 and still surprising today. It's important, though, to understand the context within the story behind certain films in order to make sense of the elements intentionally placed by the filmmakers. While horror films can contain shocking moments of disturbing human behavior and violence, these elements can still serve a purpose and offer a critique on society and the horrors of everyday life. In 1967, Americans were experiencing the effects of the real-life horrors during the height of the Vietnam War. As a result, author Nicole Brown states that filmmakers did not turn away from horror, but rather embraced it as a new way of making political commentary. George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead from 1968 is well-known to, well to be a political discourse of sorts that addresses the mutation, deadening, and loss of humanity that was seen during the Vietnam War. Political subtext aside, when American-Canadian filmmaker George A. Romero released Night of the Living Dead onto unsuspecting audiences, the film single-handedly became responsible for creating the zombie genre we know today, since zombies prior to this film were mostly portrayed as people possessed by voodoo. Night of the Living Dead is also arguably a new wave horror film in its purest form. Author Alan White states that, in comparison to the French New Wave era, Night of the Living Dead utilizes similar techniques touted by the French Nouvelle Vague, namely the use of available lighting and handheld camera shots, which gave it gritty, re uh, gritty realism. George Romero's sole motivator behind Knight's handheld grittiness was mostly due to budgetary restraints rather than for purely aesthetic purposes, which makes the finished film a truly genuine piece of new wave cinema history. The story in Night of the Living Dead, of which certain elements may seem familiar to modern day audiences, starts off with a brother and sister, Johnny and Barbara, making their way to a cemetery in Pittsburgh to visit their mother's grave. Barbara gets attacked by a strange man roaming the cemetery who seems to be attacking for no reason. After her brother is killed, Barbara attempts to flee for her life and discovers a farmhouse where inside she seeks safety, but instead finds a mangled corpse upstairs, which reduces Barbara to a childlike state of shock and confusion. An African-American man named Ben shows up at the farmhouse just as other ghoulish people show up and attempt to break in. Ben and Barbara board up the house and then discover a cellar where there is a family of three and two teenagers hiding. The group finds out over television and radio that what's been happening to them is happening all over the East Coast, these ghouls attacking and eating people for no apparent reason. After some tension-filled arguments amongst the group, Ben attempts to orchestrate a plan to get to the truck outside so they can try to escape and find help. Basically, everything goes wrong, and Ben is left to defend himself in the house as everyone else ends up being killed by the ghouls. Spoiler alert. I apologize. The next morning, some armed men patrolling the countryside are killing ghouls and throwing them into a pile. They end up at the farmhouse, where Ben hears gunfire and goes upstairs to see what's going on. One of the men, mistaking him for a ghoul, shoots Ben in the head, killing him. Ben's body is dragged onto the pile of other corpses, which is then set on fire. Upon its release, Night of the Living Dead sparked controversy due to the unflinching way the horrific events on screen were displayed. Children used 
to getting dropped off at the Saturday matinee and watching monster movies were no doubt traumatized by Knight's subject matter and the fact that every character dies, including the hero. The film was also a big deal in America's history, considering its place in time with the civil rights movement, and the fact that the film's main protagonist was an African-American man, played by Dwayne Jones, who was shown on screen bossing around white characters and even smacking some of them around. George Romero admits that his choice to pick Dwayne as his lead actor was not a political one, but rather, George did so because he believed that Dwayne was simply the best actor for the role. One of the reasons that Night of the Living Dead is such a genuine new wave film is because George Romero was not trying to make a film that mimicked or contained elements of the French Nouvelle Vague. He was simply making a film and understood what he was trying to do with it, telling a horror story as a social and political allegory, and used the budget restraints to his advantage, such as the decision to shoot the film in black and white. Night of the Living Dead touches on elements of government and nuclear warfare, as it's hinted that radiation is the cause of the events which turn the people into ghouls. This makes the monsters even scarier since they aren't just monsters, but rather, they're us. Night of the Living Dead is indeed a genuine new wave film, considering George Romero made the film specifically in response to the tensions happening in America during the 1960s. Romero said about his film, It was 1968, man. Everybody had a message. The anger and attitude and all that's there is just because it was the 60s. I love that, man. It's arguable that Night of the Living Dead was an integral part of the 1960s movement of new American cinema, since, as author Jeffrey Noel Smith states, the films promoted under that new American cinema banner were radically different from mainstream products, which in context meant Hollywood, whereas the new cinemas in Europe and elsewhere in the world were much closer to, and indeed a part of, regular commercial cinema. So while the norm for a lot of American Hollywood films gravitated toward the happy ending that left audiences with an upbeat feeling, Night of the Living Dead made the very Nouvelle Vague decision to have the main character die at the end of the film with an ambiguous ending that implies the story's events are still ongoing. True to the other new wave movements during this time, Night of the Living Dead focused on showing what real-life horror is like, which was also a reaction to the social and political events during that time, making it one of the best American examples to be found. It also showed how certain elements of the French New Wave era were beginning to cross borders and end up in stories being told around the world. So, if you're expressing interest in the global New Wave movements from the 1950s leading up to the 1970s, and you have an affinity for horror, um, you'd be doing yourself a huge favor to look into the horror films of that decade, as there are quite a few that are not typically labeled as New Wave era films. The reason these films exist, including the ones discussed um, today, is because the French New Wave movement inspired countless other directors and filmmakers to go against the norm of what mainstream cinema was producing during these times. True horror films are not meant to be taken at face value, as they are a representation of our societies throughout the years. Just as current New Wave social horror films like Get Out from 2017 can be a representation of the horrors of prejudice and racism experienced daily throughout the lives of many. The power of the horror film lies in the fact that they can be watched in the comfort of your own home, while the real horrors take place just outside your front door. With all of this in mind, it's easier to see the importance of horror films throughout the history of cinema, and why it's important to support filmmakers that keep pushing boundaries to tell stories in response to the world around us, which can create new film movements. 
The horror genre is perfect for allowing filmmakers across all borders to tell their own unique stories, since they can use fantastical and surreal elements to explore new ideas in response to the horrors of the world around them. So as you can tell, I'm a really big fan of horror films. Um, I, I find them super important in the history of cinema. And I think that there is a lot more to be, to be discovered than, than already has. Um, that's why I really love going into these in-depth discussions about horror films, because um, they're, just, they're just amazing in, in the ways that they're able to portray real-life events and real-life horrors. Um, and you can, you can sit down, you can watch a film, and yeah, it's horrific and everything, but, you know, usually there's much worse stuff happening, you know, outside your front door. And um, I find that some people, I mean, if you, if you look at the Academy Awards and stuff, like horror films don't really get nominated for like awards and stuff. And I feel like it's because people, they kind of have this like, oh, that's gross. That's, that's scary. No, no, that's, that's bad. We don't like that. We like things that are, are more like happy and good and fun. And, you know, and that's why you have a push for a lot more um, upbeat biographical films and or like drama films you know they we want films that are going to tell like more um upbeat stories and and oh look horror films no that that was icky that had blood and gore in it like we don't really want to nominate that uh, i don't know it just seems like that's kind of the mindset and i do know the people that do nominate films for these award shows you know they tend to be a bit older and probably more conservative but i think that horror films are um, very accurate in the way that they portray real, real life and real life horror. And I think that there's a lot we can, we can learn from them. And if we continue to discuss them and watch them and, and yeah, there's a, there's a lot of horror films that aren't, you know, high art. They're just most meant to just, just gross out and just be entertaining. But that's more or less why I like them because some of them are just like, just very strange. And you can watch them with friends and family and you can laugh about them and you can discuss them. And, and if it's good, it'll make you think or it'll keep you up at night. Um, speaking of, I've been watching, um, Hulu's actually been, they've been pretty much killing it with, um, horror lately. They have these into the, into the dark films is what they're called. It's kind of like, a if you think of it, it's it's kind of like an anthology series, but they're all movies, and each movie is made by like different filmmakers, and they're all they all take place with like a different holiday. The one that we watched the other night was um, it's called Puka, and it's directed by um, the guy's name is like Nacho something with a V. Um, he directed um, Time Crimes, which is the Spanish language uh, time travel film. But he did this one called Puka, which was very strange. I, I didn't really like it when I first watched it because I was like, what the heck? But it's like a mixture of Donnie Darko and A Christmas Carol. And it was one of those, like, the next day when I was thinking about it, I was like, you know what? I actually did like this. I just didn't get it at first. and It wasn't what I was expecting. So if that might pique your interest, I would definitely check it out in the Into the Dark um, films. I haven't gotten to watch the other ones, but they're all supposed to be very interesting. Um, my friend Amanda that I've had on the show, she's the one that told me about them, and so I've been checking them out. Hulu also has, like, these really awesome five-minute short films. Um, it's called Huluween. 
So it, it looks like that they do this every around every Halloween in October. And I've been watching these the past couple nights, and they're all, like, really good. There's one of them in particular that I freaking loved. It's called The Hug. Just go search um, Hulu or Huluween The Hug. Please watch it. It blew me away because I, I'm a kid of the 90s. You know, I grew up going to Major Magics and Chuck E. Cheese and that. And so I love anything related to, like, arcades and anything animatronic related I find very unsettling but like fascinating and this film The Hug definitely definitely um does does it justice um using um you know birthday party at like a Pete's Arcade type place with that creepy animatronic and it uses it so effectively that I immediately am like okay this needs to be a full-length film which then got me down this rabbit hole and I was going on YouTube for hours looking at videos of creepy abandoned theme parks and animatronics. Um, I find that stuff like super fascinating. I don't know if anyone else does, but I'm actually toying around the idea of writing my next screenplay based on like an abandoned theme park and like animatronics. Um, cause I, I just think there's just so much potential there. Um, and in the first episode of my podcast here, I did mention that there is a film coming out called Wally's Wonderland, which stars Nicolas Cage, and he plays a janitor who's trying to fight to escape a an amusement park, and he's being attacked by monstrous animatronics. And like just that premise and Nicolas Cage being involved, like it has immediately shot up to like my number one like most anticipated film. Like, please, please, please. If the filmmakers who did the hug, if they're doing this, like I, I, I probably just dropped dead right now, but I'm going to stay alive long enough so I can see this film because it just sounds incredible. But anyways, uh, thank you very much for checking out um, this newest episode. I hope you learn a bit more about the new wave cinema film movement, Nouvelle Vague, as it's called in, in France. And uh, the horror genre and Night of the Living Dead um, those are all, all very favorite things of mine. George Romero, he's one of my all-time favorite filmmakers, and I've been meaning to rewatch Night, Dawn, and Day of the Dead because I do that at least once a year. But anyways, feel free to send me your feedback and suggestions. Uh, thank you very much again for checking out another episode of my podcast. This is Dustin Hendricks signing off, and again, this show is Technical Difficulties. We'll see you on the next episode.